This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Philippians chapter 3, just to give you a little bit of context, we, uh, we've been going through uh, verse by verse through the book of Philippians, uh, written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, he finds himself imprisoned uh, in Rome for preaching the gospel, and he writes back to the church at Philippi, which was a, which was a church that he started from scratch, pastored for a while, uh, moved on. About 10 years later, he writes a letter back to them, which is the book of Philippians. And so we've we, uh, been, been going through the book of Philippians verse by verse, and so we continue that in, in chapter number 3. And so uh, if you miss any of the messages so far, this is message number 43. You got some catching up. But I'll tell you this, we're burning it up, right? We finally made it to chapter 3. Uh, that's good. It only took us 43 messages to get there. So uh, anyways, uh, Philippians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse number 1 and go through verse number 3. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you. To me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it's safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Paul, as he writes here, he challenges the church at Philippi. Hey, guys, be aware, because verse number two, he tells us us that there are dogs and evil workers. Now, the dogs that he's speaking here of aren't physical uh, canines like we would think, but it's, it's people who would come to take you and pull you away from the church or pull you away from good teaching or uh, would cause division in the church in some way or another. He also says, beware of evil workers as well. These are fake Christians or people who proclaim to be Christians, but are actually doing the opposite type of work in the church as well. Be on board, uh, sorry, be on guard against that uh, and be prepared to act accordingly. But he says in verse number three, we are of the circumcision. And we don't have time to unpack exactly what that means, but basically we are the distinct followers of Jesus Christ is what Paul's talking about as he writes here. But he makes a real clear differentiation. There are, verse number two, dogs, evil workers, people who proclaim to be Christians but are not. And then there are us who are the real Christians in verse number three. I had the opportunity to travel uh, two years ago to the country of Malaysia. Uh, never been to, to the, uh, the South Pacific, never been in Southeast Asia anywhere, uh, anything like that. And so it was neat, neat for me to go and see that. If you're not familiar, Malaysia is a, a Muslim country and it's against the law to share the faith or share the gospel with someone who is a Muslim. And so if they get an ID card from the government listing their, their religion uh, of their family and if they're considered a Muslim family or an Islamic family, it's against the law to share your faith with them. But if this person's not of the Islamic faith, you're more than free to, to share uh, the gospel or any other world religion with, with them that you want to. And so as a result, there are a lot of churches that reach out to Chinese and Korean and Japanese that are there in Malaysia that are doing work, people from Singapore, uh, people from, from India. And so basically they've made a, uh, a lot of work in, in sharing the gospel with people that aren't from uh, Malaysia or not from the Islamic faith. I had the opportunity one Sunday to preach at the Kuala Lumpur Baptist Church, which is the largest Baptist church in the country of Malaysia. It was, it was a really neat opportunity. They have five different ministries with speaking five different languages. And so I had the opportunity to preach five times on a Sunday morning. It was awesome. And so it, it was neat because the Sunday morning that I got to preach there in the, the English service, uh, we had uh, seven people accept Jesus Christ as Savior after the service. It was awesome. Had the opportunity after the service to talk with these people and figure out how they came to faith in Jesus Christ and things along those lines. It was really exciting. 
had the opportunity to go to a, a staff meeting at a church uh, the next day, uh, and the, the, uh, during the staff meeting, they said, we had an evangelistic concert uh, at the church last, uh, last night, and so one of their churches that they had, uh, they had an evangelistic concert where a, a couple from the United States had come over and played music and talked about Jesus and stuff like that, and they said, we had 200 people pray the prayer to follow Jesus. And immediately, uh, my, my ears perked up because you got 200 people that profess faith in Christ or 200 people that pray to prayer. Uh, and so I had a little bit more questions. So I raised my hand and I said, what prayer was that that they prayed? And the room got kind of quiet and they were kind of like chuckled like, oh, here's the, the, the dumb pastor from America that doesn't know about the sinner's prayer. And they said, oh, the sinner's prayer. And I go, oh, okay, got it. And, and they were kind of befuddled by my response to that, that I wasn't excited, wasn't clapping the way that everybody else was because in this concert, they had just said that there were 200 people that attended the concert and 200 people that had prayed the prayer, quote, prayed the prayer. And I immediately became skeptical because, first of all, we never find a single place in all of the Bible where there's a sinner's prayer listed that one needs to repeat. Secondly, if you get 100% of people in one location, 100% of those people to accept Jesus Christ as Savior, your math is wrong somewhere, or somebody has made a false profession of faith. It just doesn't work that way. Jesus Christ never batted a thousand. Jesus never preached to a thousand people, and a thousand people received it. It just never happened. And so I immediately became a little bit skeptical of what was going on. I thought, man, I got I to gotta see this. I got to see it for myself. So they're having a, another concert. The week after that, I had the opportunity to be able to go to that concert, and the the music was good, and throughout the course of the, the music, the, the guy was talking about his life before he met Jesus and how, all the change that Jesus had made, and here's a song that talks about that. It was, it, was, it was cute. It was good. It was, for the most part, doctrinally solid. We get down to the end, though, and he says, I just feel led that everybody here needs to, to accept Jesus Christ as Savior tonight. He says, I'm going to pray a prayer. You repeat after me. And he says, even if you call yourself a Christian, I want you to pray this prayer anyways, all right? Just repeat after me. Dear Lord, I receive the love of Jesus in my heart tonight to be shed abroad through my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give a hand because all of us just accepted Jesus Christ as Savior tonight. And my heart sank. And I did not clap. <laughs> I did not repeat the, uh, the, the, the one, two, three, repeat after me. But I thought to myself, does anybody think that anything special just happened right now because all we did was just repeat something that somebody told us to repeat and, and nobody accepted Jesus Christ as Savior because in that type of context, it just doesn't work that way. Uh, I had the opportunity several years ago, our family's on vacation, we couldn't find a good Baptist church to go to, uh, and so we found a non-denominational church which appeared to be uh, doctrinally orthodox on the surface, and so we go, and uh, the uh, pastor that day was preaching, he was speaking from a portion of scripture that came from the book of Judges. Let me say that. He wasn't preaching the Bible for sure. He talked about how God had given Gideon a dream and how Gideon's dream changed from time to time. And God's given you a dream and God wants you to dream again. And just like God changed Gideon's dream, sometimes God changes your dream and, and God just wants you to dream again. And I thought to myself, you've taken a vague story from the Bible and made it even more opaque more vague, more vanilla, more watered down, and you're trying to shoehorn that into a motivational speech that God wants you to be really happy with life. And I thought to myself, this just doesn't fit. And so the whole time I'm sitting there thinking like, this is terrible. There's no exposition of scripture. There's no just explaining what the Bible says. Look, I can give you 10 lessons from the story of Gideon that come straight from the Bible. But he was trying to shoehorn a motivational speech into a story from the Bible that just didn't fit. But the worst part for me came at the end of the service when the pastor had everybody bow their heads and close their eyes and he says, 
if God spoke into your heart about dreaming, I want to dream with you. He says, if you're at a place in your life where you're ready to begin to dream again, I want you to raise your hand with my hand. And man, 300 people raised their hand that they wanted to dream again. And he says, I want everybody to look around and see the hands of these people that just trusted Jesus Christ just right now. And everybody began to clap and the band came up and they played a loud music and everybody went home. And my heart sank. And I thought to myself, no, 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 no. Nobody got saved today. Nobody accepted Jesus Christ as Savior today. Nothing happened. I went to another church one time uh, in Southern California. The pastor made a, a vague reference at the end of the service. No lie. The, I had to write down the words because I couldn't believe that they were actually coming out of someone who claimed to be a pastor's mouth. He said this, if you'd like to turn over whatever you've got going on in your life over to Jesus, raise your hand. What does that exactly mean, precisely? What does that mean? Whatever you got going on, turn it over to Jesus. What does that mean? And, and again, a lot of people raise their hand. He said, everybody kept their hand up. I want to talk to you after the service today. I'll be in the back. We're going to talk about baptism because next Sunday is Baptism Sunday and you need to get baptized. And I thought to myself, baptized for what? Because you want to vaguely turn over whatever you have going over to Jesus as if that means something? And so you say, well, pastor, you're just, you're just you're nitpicking at stuff. Or you're just being hard. No, no, no. We as Bible-believing Christians, I'm going to introduce you to a word if you don't know it. We are biblicists. If the Bible says it, we live by it. If the Bible doesn't, we, we go on about our merry way. Nowhere in the Bible will you find a Bible verse that talks about turning it over to Jesus, dreaming again, uh, you know, vague references to, to opening your heart up to Jesus and things like that. You will find Bible words like saved. You'll find Bible words like born again. You'll find Bible words like converted those are good Bible words that we should talk about when it comes to the matter of what happens to our eternal soul. Because, look, if, again, if there were important things to talk about here at Hui Kala, this would rank in the top one of one. Because you can get, be a little bit different on other things. You might decide that you're going to live your life for yourself selfishly uh, and still be a Christian, and, and you'll miss out on the blessings of God's life. You might decide to go back to your sin after you've accepted Christ as Savior, and you'll forfeit some of the blessings that God wants to give you. You'll endure chastening. You might decide that you don't really want to be a full-time Christian or more of a part-time Christian or whatever, and you'll miss out on the goodness of God that you'll miss out from that. You might decide not to walk in the Spirit, and you won't be filled with love and joy and peace and long-suffering in your life like you want. But look, you miss out on the gospel how do you get your sins forgiven? You mess that up. You ruin everything for now and the rest of eternity. And look, friend, you mess up this idea of salvation. You don't miss heaven by six inches. You miss it by 60 billion miles. And so today we're going to take a look at what it means to be legitimately saved. Paul says in this passage here, verse number two, there's dogs, there's evil workers. These people are not workers of Christ. These are not Christians. But then verse number three, he says, for us, though, we are Christians. And I want to say from the very beginning here that Hui Kala Baptist Church is not the only church in town that knows the truth, that preaches the truth, that preaches the gospel. I'm just saying it's becoming less and less common today to hear people proclaim the truth of the Word of God clearly. And so uh, I want you to, to, to dial in to, to today's message because it's super duper important. First of all, why do we need to be saved? First of all, we need to be saved because we have sinned against God. All of us. Romans chapter 3, verse number 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What does it mean that all have sinned? It means everybody has sinned. 
I've sinned, you've sinned, we've all broken God's law, not once or twice. Uh, sin that we do is not that one thing we did while we were in college that we're really not proud of. No, sin is what we did this past week. Sin is who we are. The Bible says that, that sin is part of our human existence. Romans uh, chapter 5 tells us that uh, just as sin came into the world by one man, sin now has passed upon all men for all men have sinned. And, and it goes so far in the book of Romans to say, if you had a dad, your dad passed on his sin nature to you. And, and we don't have time to dig into it today, but that's why the virgin birth of Christ is so important because Jesus didn't have an earthly father. So he had no sin nature. So he could pay for our sin. But if you had a dad you're a sinner. If you've ever broken God's law, you're a sinner, not once or twice, but continually. And that's problematic. Uh, the Bible says that there's none righteous, no, not one, that even you and I on our best day couldn't stop sinning if we wanted to. And the problem with sin is that sin must be paid for. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Because we've sinned against God, we have to pay. Uh, the Bible goes so far into the book of Hebrews, it says that uh, not only is death the wages of our sin, but without the shedding of the blood, there's no remission of sin. That We have to die, and it's not going to be pretty. That's the way that you can pay for your own sin if you'd like. You see, because sin has to be paid for. Either you can pay or somebody else can pay for you. Now, your payment for sin means this. You die a physical death, and then you stand before God. It's appointed unto man once to die, after that the judgment. So every single person on planet earth, the second you take your last breath, you're standing before a holy God in judgment. That goes for everybody. And God doesn't have this scale up there where he says, oh, you know, let's put all your good on one side, all your bad on the other, and we'll see where you, you kind of even things out. It doesn't work that way. It comes to the matter of, have you sinned? Yes. The penalty is death. And the second death, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 20, is hell real place, burns a real fire for all of eternity. This is where we all deserve to go. This is the payment for our sin. But remember how I said somebody else could pay for you, that someone else can't be me because I have my own sin debt to pay for. This church couldn't pay your sin debt because it's made up of sinners who also have a sin debt that must be paid. Religion can't pay for your debt. There's not enough water in the world to wash away the wrong that you've done. And can you imagine just the concept of all the terrible things that you and I have done in our lives that we just get dunked under water and that just makes it all go away like it never happened? It just doesn't even make logical sense. It has to be dealt with. It has to be paid for, but I can't pay for you. It would have to be someone who owes God nothing, who has no penalty for their own sins, and that person is Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse number 8 says it beautifully. But God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, I was supposed to die for my sin, but Jesus died in my place. I was supposed to be punished for my sin, but Jesus was punished on the cross for me. Not because he had done anything wrong, but because I had done something wrong. Because you had done something wrong. That's the whole point of the cross of Jesus Christ. Sin must be paid for. Either you can pay for it by going to hell or Jesus can pay for it by his death upon the cross. But the fact of the matter is somebody has to pay for it. And the good news is, is that Jesus paid the price of our sin. Again, Isaiah chapter 53, verse number six was a prophecy. It was actually written hundreds of years before Jesus was crucified. And it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone into his own way and the Lord have laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Our sin was placed upon Jesus Christ. And so 
the idea is this. We've all sinned. We must pay for our sin or Jesus can pay the price for us. That's the bottom line. Sometimes when people are talking about, you know, religious coworkers or religious friends or family members they have, they say, oh, my parents think that I'm going to hell because I drink beer on the weekends. Well, first of all, you're not going to hell because you drink beer on the weekends. You're going to hell because you're a sinner. It has nothing to do with what you do on the weekends. It has to do with who you are as a person. You're not going to hell because of your, your sexual immorality. You're going to hell because you sinned against God. And the fact of the matter is, is there's only one way to make that right with God. Pay the price. So either you can pay or Jesus can pay for you. That is the whole story of the Bible from beginning to end. From Genesis to Revelation, it's the story. Jesus died for sinners. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the sins of mankind is the story of the Bible. It's the whole story. It's the whole reason why it's there. This church exists for one reason and one reason only, to tell people about how they can know Jesus and how he can change their life and their eternal life. That's the only reason we're here. Again, that's why if you come to who we call about the church, first of all, if this is your first day at who we call it, thanks for being here. We're delighted to have you as our guest. It's going to get heavy, but it's going to get really light at the end. So we're good. But here's the thing. When you come to Holy College, we're going to talk about Jesus' death on the cross 52 weeks out of the year. You know why? Because it's the only thing that really matters at the end of the day. I would hate for somebody to come to Holy College that doesn't know Jesus, that's never accepted Christ as Savior, and I come and I talk on, let's just say, prayer. We're going to talk about prayer today and how you need to pray more, and God wants to hear your prayers, and God wants to act on your behalf, and uh, God has a plan, and uh, sometimes our plans match up with God's plans, but God's plans are always best, and you just need to pray more. And the person who doesn't know Jesus as Savior walks out going thinking, I think I just need to pray more. I went to church that one time, he just told me to pray, so I'm just going to pray. No, I want you to understand that this life will soon be over, and after this you'll stand before a holy God, either in joy or in judgment, and the choice is totally up to you. I want you to get that, even if you're just at who we call it one time, I want you to understand you're standing before God. Because I would hate to just pat you on your head and send you on your way, and you can say, just try to be nice to people this week. And I remember growing up in a church that was doctrinally solid church. It was a Baptist church. We believe that Jesus Christ was the only way to heaven. There was faith alone by, by, and by God's grace alone that saved us. Doctrinally exactly the same as our church, but here's the thing. We never once talked about the gospel and how to tell people about Jesus and see people come to faith in Christ. I remember once a year we would have a friend day, usually in the summertime, where you would invite a friend to church that they didn't go to church normally. And I remember the pastor saying, if you invite your friend to church on this Sunday, friend day, I'm going to preach the gospel and we'll hear about how to be saved. And so, man, you had to get, get your friend that doesn't know Jesus to friend day and trying to find a, a friend in the Bible belt that doesn't know Jesus was very difficult in, in itself. But, uh, but the idea was, hey, we have one Sunday a year where we, we tell people about Jesus. And it sounded really noble, like our church cares for souls. But then I got a little bit older and I got to be a grown man that read the Bible for myself. And I thought to myself, if you're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ one Sunday a year, what in the Sam Hill are you preaching the other 51 weeks out of the year? Like, what else are we talking about if we're not talking about the gospel? So if you come to Huikala, we're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about how to behave at work and how to treat your coworkers and how to love your wife and how to support your husband and encourage him. All of that's important because it's all in the Bible, but we cannot ever leave out the part that Jesus is the center of all of it. Because if we do, we become just another self-help group. We become another group that's just like, hey, you got dreams in your heart. God wants you to dream. God wants you to fulfill your dreams. And whatever's in your heart, 
God's given you that. You need to hang on to that and, and just continue to dream for that dream you've got in your heart. Well, if you read the Bible, the Bible says that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all other things. Who can even know their own heart? So the last advice that any pastor who actually knows the Bible would give you is trust your heart because your heart is a liar. According to the Bible. Not my thoughts, the Bible. So if we get rid of the gospel and chuck the whole idea of sin and hell and repentance and all that, we got nothing left other than just a bunch of self-help talk, which doesn't help anybody because the gospel helps everybody. Are you with me? Does that make sense? So gospel, big deal. And if you miss this, you miss all of it. None of this other stuff makes any sense whatsoever if you miss out on this critical piece. So the question is in, what do we have to do to be saved? That's the, the important question, and it's not difficult. First of all, you have to be willing to have full faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Believe on Jesus Christ with full faith. Jesus says in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That phrase, believeth on him, means to have full faith and assurance in him. <laughs> Yesterday, my... Uh, my wife came into my office and uh, I was sitting on my uh, chair that I got in my office. I, I found these really cool Ikea-ish looking chairs on Facebook Marketplace that I got a really good deal on. And they were Ikea-ish because they came in a box and with little to no instructions and like one Allen wrench and you're like, uh, how does this all go together? And like the first couple times I sat on them, they sounded like they, they were cracking, but I convinced my wife that's just the chairs breaking themselves in, right? Uh, and so, uh, but uh, she, she believes they're a little bit sketchy, but I think they're solid. And so yesterday I told her, she came in my office and she said, hey, come sit on my lap. And she was like, I'm not sitting on your lap on those chairs, they'll fall in. And I was like, no, they won't. Like, like, Phil, they're sturdy, they're good. And she was like, I don't know about that. And so she came over and she sat on my lap and she went like this, like sat down really slowly. And she kept her feet on the floor the whole time, like, like almost like a half squat. And finally she's like, I can't do it. I, can't, I just can't. <laughs> That's a perfect picture of some people when it comes to believing in Jesus. Yeah, I kind of put some faith. No, I can't do it. I just can't do it. I, I'll believe on Jesus. I'll pray a prayer if maybe I can go to heaven. But I don't really think that prayer did anything. I don't really believe the Bible really knows what it's talking about. I don't really believe that Jesus is the only way. I mean, I'm willing to give it a shot. If you think that it would work, I might could put a little bit of faith in it. That's not full faith. Full faith is, if I am wrong, I have no other options. People often ask me, well, well, what if you die and you find out that what you really believed wasn't true? Well, I'm so fully convinced in what I believe being true that that's never going to happen in 10 million years. And you say, well, you're awfully proud of yourself. No, I have great confidence in the Word of God, the Bible great confidence that I don't believe that there could possibly be another way. I have that much faith in the Bible that if there is another way, I'm toast because I got all my eggs in one basket. I remember talking with a, a Hindu man several years ago and went through the gospel with him and he said, I believe in the historical Jesus. I believe that he did good things. I'm willing to even believe that he uh, is the son of God and has you know, supernatural power and things along those lines. And I'd be willing to put my faith in Jesus also. <laughs> What do you mean also? Well, I, we believe in many gods and there's many gods out there and I believe that Jesus could be one of the gods and I would, I would take him too. No, he doesn't work that way. He is the only God. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He has no other people that he shares his platform with. He is tops 100% of the time. And so here's a man who was willing to put a little bit of faith in Jesus but not his full faith in Jesus Christ. 
So you have to be willing to say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he is who he says that he is. And I believe that he died for my sins. Full faith, 110%. And here's the second part. You must be willing to repent of your sin. So full faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and repentance of sin. Now, some people get hung up on the word repentance because they don't understand what it means. So I'm going to tell you, first of all, what it does mean. Repentance means a change of mind that results in a change of heart, which results in a change of direction. But it all begins with a change of mind. Uh, the Greek word that's used in the Bible for the word repentance is the word metanoia, which means to change one's mind. In other passages, it means to agree with God. I believe the Bible that I am wrong. I believe the Bible in that I have sinned. I agree with God that the way that I'm living is not okay. And I want to change. Now, I didn't say I'm going to change. I will change. It means I want to change. Because again, remember, repentance always starts with our mind. Where people get mixed up on this is they begin to say like, well, I want to follow Jesus, but I don't know if I can stop sinning. That's not repentance. Repentance is not stopping sinning. It means agreeing with God that you're wrong and you want to change. Now, the change, that takes time. It might take weeks. It might take months. It might take years to change your sinful behavior. But that's an aside. And that's one of the things that the devil wants to throw in people's way as a roadblock to salvation. Is they say, well, I don't know if I can stop sinning right away. So I don't really want to follow Jesus yet. There's a difference between salvation Faith in Jesus Christ, repentance for sin, and here's another Bible word for you, sanctification, which means laying my sin aside and being more like Jesus. Sanctification takes the rest of your life. That's not a one moment thing, but I have to be willing to say, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. I believe that he died for my sins. I'm asking him to forgive me of my sin and I'm turning from my sin. That's a requirement for salvation. So again, the idea that we can just Hey, repeat after me. Forgive me my sins and take me to heaven. Amen. Oh, let's pat you on the back. You're saved now. That's not a biblical idea because biblical salvation requires faith in Christ as Savior and repentance. And again, if we give some idea of God and don't talk about sin and we don't talk about repentance, then we haven't delved into salvation. So the idea of, of do you want to go to heaven? That's why I, I love our children's ministry workers to death. They refuse to take any kids in a corner and make them pray a prayer. That's an absolute no-no. If I find out that anybody did that in children's ministry, you never do it here again at Hui College for the rest of your life. Because you take any six-year-old over there and ask them, who wants to go to heaven? How many of you think is going to raise their hand at six years old? All of them. How many of you don't want to go to hell? Well, nobody wants to go to hell. Okay, we're going to say a prayer, and if you don't want to go to hell, repeat after us. Now, what six-year-old in the world wouldn't pray some prayer? But have we shown them the depths of their sin? Have we showed them the conviction by the Holy Spirit for the wrong that they've done in their life and their need to make things right before a holy and righteous God? No. And just to be frank, a lot of six-year-olds can't process that. Our son Vanderlei was three years old. He could tell you, you, could, you couldn't trip the kid up. Who died for our sins? Jesus died for our sins. How do you go to heaven? By putting faith in Jesus. You know, how do we get saved? By believing in our heart and confessing with our mouth. What happens to people that aren't saved? They go to hell. And you couldn't trip the kid up. Does baptism save us? No. Three years old, knew all the answers. 
but he would be nine years old before he was gripped with the depths of his own sinful condition and recognized his standing before a righteous, holy God and realized as a, even a nine-year-old boy that if he met God that night, he would meet God in judgment for all the wrongs he had done in his life. He was gripped by that and needed to be saved. That's a totally different story. So again, for us, we're not trying to get people to one, two, three, repeat after me. We're not trying to, to, you know, be able to make a Facebook post that we had, you know, 275 people in church today and 275 people got saved. That's foolishness. What we want is want everyone to know Jesus died for your sins. Jesus wants you to be saved and to give you the opportunity to come to that decision on your own, totally up to you. But know this, you need to be saved. What happens to people who die without being saved? They endure the wrath and punishment of God in hell for all of eternity. Hell is real. It burns with real fire for all of eternity. There are real people there. There are people that I know and love that have died in their sin who have, are now currently in hell. Contrary to popular belief, there are no parties in hell. There is no great band in hell. People aren't waiting for you to get to hell. If anything, if you know someone who is in hell, they're begging God for the opportunity for, to come back to tell you that you have messed up and they, you don't want to go there. Luke chapter 16, if you want to take notes, you can write Luke 16 on your notes there in the margin. The rich man, Lazarus, the rich man says, hey, can I go back and tell my brothers that they don't want to come here? There's no parties in hell. Hell is the worst thing we could possibly imagine. You wouldn't wish it upon your worst enemy. I love the Bible. I love God's word. But Revelation chapter 20 is one of the passages of scripture that if I had my way, I'd take a black marker and just mark it out like it didn't happen. Revelation chapter 20, verse number 15. It's in your notes if you have your notes handy. I'm sorry, verse number 11. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, whose face the earth and heaven fled away. There's found no place for them. I saw the dead, small and great. Now remember, the wages of sin is death. He's talking about the dead here. Small and great stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the book of life, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. They were judged every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. This is the most troubling verse in all of the Bible. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Friend, if you don't put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if your name does not get written in that Lamb's book of life, the Bible says that when you stand before God, he's going to open up the book and your name's not there and you're cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. That's not what I believe. That's not what our church believes. That's not what uh, I came up with from the Bible. That's not what Baptists believe. That's what the word of God says authoritatively. So we're not trying to teach you how to be a Baptist or how to join our church or anything like that. I'm trying to tell you what the Bible says. And I'm trying to help you stay out of hell and help you to find people that you know that are currently on their way to hell to get them out as well. Sometimes people would say, well, how would a loving and merciful and kind God really send people to hell? It's a great question. Sometimes people ask the question, well, what about people who have never heard of the gospel, ever heard about what Jesus has done? What about those people that are in a jungle somewhere in West Africa that have never heard about Jesus? Would God really send those people to hell? Well, great question. First of all, Romans chapter 1 says that everybody knows that there's a God. Everybody. That God's revealed himself unto all men so that they are, here's what the Bible says, without excuse. Everybody knows there's a God. 
You trace every, every single solitary world civilization back through human history, and you'll find that they had a deity that they deemed as all-powerful, that they worshipped, that they desired to gain favor from. Everybody knows that there is a God in heaven because God's revealed himself to all men. But they need to know about Jesus, right? Absolutely. So would God send people in West Africa to hell because they didn't know about Jesus? Here's a better question that I have for people that might ask that question. If you really believe that there's a hell and you believe that telling people about Jesus would change their opportunity to go to heaven, rather than asking the question, why would God send them to hell? The question is, why aren't we telling more people? If you, if you believe there's people in West Africa that have never heard about Jesus and are going to die and go to hell, why do you sit and watch eight hours of Netflix a day? Why do you scroll your Facebook feed every 10 minutes if there's people that are really going to die and go to hell? And here's a crazy thought too, crazy thought. The people that have never heard about Jesus, according to statistics, half of the world's population, 50%, has never heard of the gospel one time, ever. They've never heard that Jesus Christ died for sinners, ever. 50% of the world's population. Here's the crazy thought. You don't have to go to a jungle in West Africa to find those three and a half billion people. There's people that literally live 50 yards from a church building that have never heard about Jesus Christ. I talk with people in our city and I begin to share my faith with them and I say things like, well, it all started back in the Garden of Eden. They say, whoa, whoa, where's the Garden of Eden at? It's like Adam and Eve, you know. Who's that? Well, okay, let's back up to Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here's the thing, that's not a bad thing. They just don't know any better. That, that Jesus is some guy that they think of that, that died on a cross and they're not sure why because everybody hated his guts. That means nothing to them. And so here's the worst part. There are people that you go to work with this week that don't know about Jesus. There's people that live on your street that don't know about Jesus. We don't have to go to the jungles of West Africa to find them. They're on your street, they're in your block, they're in the cubicle down the hall from you. And so if you really believe that there's a real hell that burns with real fire and you don't tell people, the fact of the matter is you just don't care. So don't put it on God that God sends people to hell. I need to be putting it on me that I don't care enough about lost people to actually tell them about Jesus. That's on me, not on God. And look, if there's 200 or 2 billion professing Christians in the world, I think if every Christian in the world told four people we could knock this whole thing out in a couple of weeks, what do you say? The, the, num the math works out, right? The problem is the majority of people that either call themselves Christians aren't real Christians or secondly, just don't care. Either way, that's embarrassing. So, I challenge you. Have a heart for the lost. Believe that there are people that are going to die and go to hell and spend eternity without Jesus. That's a big deal. But before we can help anybody else, you need to ask yourself this question. Are you sure that you're saved? Has there been a time, a date, a place in your life where you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Jesus himself says in John chapter 3, no man shall see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You got to be saved to go to heaven. And, and friend, if you're not saved, you can't help anybody else. You know, when you go on an airplane, they tell you when the oxygen masks drop, put on yours first and then help other people. Same concept applies here. If you don't have your mask on, you can't help anybody else. So you need to make sure that you're saved first. That's my, my greatest concern. Is I know for a fact that there are people that attend who we call that are not saved. That, that burdens me. And I'm not trying to be uh, extravagant when I say things like that keeps me up at night. 
The people that I know that I see eyeball to eyeball every single week and I say, hey man, how's it going? Hey, what's up? How's your week? I prayed for you this week. To know that those people are going to spend eternity in hell, that, that, that bothers me. So I want you to know for sure that you're saved. Has there been a time, a date, and a place where you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and have been born again? I'm not talking about have you had a religious experience? I'm not talking about have you ever gone forward at a church service? Have you ever raised your hand? I'm talking about are you saved? Are there people that would profess to be Christians that will go to hell? The answer to that, absolutely. Just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't mean anything. Just because you, again, in the same church or your name is on a church roll in some church somewhere or you got baptized when you were an eight-year-old does not mean for sure that you're saved. Take a look at, um, take your Bible through Matthew chapter 13. I could, okay, I could quote this passage to you, but I want you to read it with your own eyeballs. It's, it's good. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus is telling a story. I love his stories, his parables. A parable is an earthly story that has a heavenly application. It's illustrations. Matthew chapter 13, verse number 24. Matthew 13, 24. Another parable he put forth saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. This man was going to plant wheat. While men slept, the enemy, verse 25, came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. Basically what happened is there's wheat and then there's tares. Tares look exactly like wheat side by side. The problem is, is when you break open wheat on the inside of the wheat is the wheat germ. That's the actual fruit part of the wheat. But when you break open a tear, there's nothing there. It's just weeds, basically, that looks like wheat. And so this man had a wheat field and somebody came at night and sowed weeds in his wheat field that when they sprang up they looked exactly the same verse number 26 when the blade blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit then appeared the tares also so the servants of the householder came and said to him sir didst not thou sow good seed in the field from whence then hath it tares hey didn't you sow good seed why do we have weeds instead he said unto them, an enemy hath done this. And the servant said, go unto him. Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? Hey, go take care of the enemy and, and we'll go pull all the weeds. And he says, no, verse 29, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. In the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather you together first the tares, bind them in bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Oh man, what a story. Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. Hey, there's going to be real Christians that are the wheat, and beside them, the enemy. Who's the enemy? Somebody help me. The devil, Satan, has planted fake wheat, fake Christians. They're going to grow up right beside the real deal so that people, when they first look at it, they don't know which one is which. And so here's what I love about Jesus' stories. They're so rich with detail. The guys that work in the field that are, are touching the wheat every single day, they know the fake stuff when they get to it. They can tell the difference, but they said nobody else can tell the difference. They know what a real Christian looks like and what a fake Christian looks like. They know the difference. They say, hey, what should we do? Let's get rid of all this fake stuff. And the master says, no, 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 wait. We're just going to wait until the harvest comes because when the harvest comes, the reapers 
will take all the fake stuff out, bind it up, burn it. But the good stuff, take that aside, put it in my barns. So, we could say, based on this parable, that within any church in America, there are real Christians and there are fake Christians sitting side by side, and we don't know which one is which. The only thing that will make the determination is when the harvest day comes, the fake ones go one way, and the real stuff stays with the master in his barn. He said, are you saying that there's people at who we call, that call themselves Christians that really aren't? I believe that very well could be the case, for sure. Does that bother you? Absolutely, no doubt about it. Are there people at our church that know for a fact that they're not Christians? Absolutely. But here's the fact of the matter. It's not my job to separate one out from the other. We're just going to continue to work the fields the way that we normally do, and at the end, the master will sort out everything at the harvest. So are there people who proclaim to be Christians that aren't really? Absolutely. We'll see a little bit later that Jesus actually says, many will say to me that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. So the fact of the matter is, Jude chapter 1, verse number 4, for there are certain men crept in unawares who before of old ordained unto condemnation. Men who came into the church, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 24, Jesus says, there shall be false Christs and false prophets shall show great signs and wonders. So are there people who claim to be Christians that are going to go to hell? Absolutely. Now, here's the important part. It's not my job or your job to point out who those people are. Well, I bet he's a fake Christian. I've never seen him pray before. I bet that guy's a fake Christian. He only comes to church every other week. Not your job, not my job. You know what we do? We let the fruit continue to grow, and the master's going to sort it out come harvest day. We're just going to keep working the field. That's all we can do. So, important things to understand about salvation. First of all, you're not saved just because you believe in God. Again, when I talk to people, I use Bible words. Has there been a time in your life where you've been saved? Hey, Bob, has there been a, a time in your life where you've accepted Christ as Savior? Hey, Jane, has there ever been a time in your life where you've been born again? Those are all three Bible words. I never ask the question, are you a Christian? <laughs> people just automatically assume, well, I believe in God. Of course I'm a Christian, right? <laughs> well, I'm not a Satanist. Of course I'm a Christian. Right? I wouldn't consider myself an atheist, so for sure I'm a Christian. I never ask that question. I might ask, do you believe in God? But here's what the book of James tells us. That the demons, the fallen angels that take their bidding at the devil's word, the demons believe that there's a God and tremble. They're terrified of God. doesn't mean that they're Christians. It doesn't mean they're born again. So uh, the fact that you believe in God does not mean that you're a Christian. It does not mean that you're saved. Sometimes I'll ask people, it's been a time in your life where you've accepted Christ as Savior, and they say, well, I've always believed in God. That wasn't the question. Have you had a time, a date, a place in your life where you've been born again? Where you recognize your need for a Savior and you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Has there been a time like that in your life? Oh, no, I don't guess so, but I've always believed in God. Then you are not a Christian. Not by my estimation, by the, the Word's definition. So just because you believe in God doesn't necessarily make you a Christian. You're not saved because of your family heritage. Oftentimes I'll talk with people about their faith and I'll say, hey, has there been a time in your life where you've accepted Christ as Savior? And somebody else will say, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, my grandfather was a preacher. My dad was a deacon. My mom was a Sunday school teacher. My brother went to seminary. 
That was not the question. The question is, have you been saved or born again? And sometimes people think they can ride the coattails of somebody else's faith. Both my parents were Christian, and I might sometimes say I was raised in a Christian home. But being raised in a Christian home didn't make me a Christian. I had to come to a point, a time in my life, where I made a decision to accept Jesus Christ as Savior. Because I couldn't ride my parents' coattails into heaven. That doesn't work that way. And friend, let me help you with this. When you stand before God one day, it's appointed unto man once to die, after that the judgment. When you stand before God, I won't be there that day. Your mom and dad won't be there that day. Your wife, your husband won't be there that day to vouch for you. You've got to have your own, you got to stand on your own two feet. Book of Ezekiel, chapter uh, number 18, verse number 20. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. Neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him. And the wickedness of the wicked shall be on him. You stand on your own two feet. You take what's coming to you. If anybody else has made a decision for Christ, that's on them. But you have an individual responsibility before God for your own soul. That's 100% on you. You're not going to heaven because somebody in your family is. You're not saved because of your baptism, your church attendance, or your church membership. Oftentimes I'll ask people, has there been a time in your life where you've accepted Christ as Savior? They'll say, well, I got baptized when I was a teenager. That wasn't the question. Baptism doesn't save anyone. And again, the idea that I can wash away all the wrong that I've done with a little bit of tap water or ocean water, that just doesn't even make sense, logically. Well, I, I've been to church every single Sunday since the day I was born. Good for you. Got a lot of good marks on perfect attendance. But that doesn't do anything for your record of your sin in heaven. Well, I was, I was confirmed as a teenager. I don't know what confirmation is because I don't find it in the Bible anywhere, but I know for sure that doesn't do anything as far as getting you to heaven. You have a sin problem that must be paid. Tell me when your debt was paid. That's the only answer to that question. But again, (coughs) salvation is so crystal clear. Faith and repentance. It's so easy that a child can figure it out. We had our uh, Sharing Jesus Evangelism training four weeks ago. We had a kids class where we taught six-year-old kids on how to share their faith with other people. It's It's not rocket science. It's not convoluted. It's not confusing. But let me tell you this, religion has made it confusing. Oh, you need to be baptized, you need to go to catechism, you need to be confirmed, you need to take communion, you need to be faithful to church, you need to make sure that you keep all these rules, and then maybe when you die, we'll pray really hard that may God have mercy on your soul. We'll pray really hard that maybe one day your soul will rest in peace, and maybe you'll make it. That's very confusing and convoluted, other than just faith in Jesus Christ saves me from my sin. And let me just tell you, God's not the author of confusion. And the only person that wants to make salvation confusing is the devil. If he can get you to doubt God's word, get you to doubt that faith in Jesus Christ was enough, he's won. Again, so many times I've talked with people and I say, they say, well, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and I prayed and asked him to save me, but I want to make sure that I do all my religious stuff just to make sure I get to heaven. Friend, that's one of the most blasphemous things that you can say is to say that the blood of Jesus is not enough. I've got to add my own stuff to it to give it the power to get to heaven. What? To think that I have anything to add to the work that Jesus has already done, it's ludicrous, it's foolishness. So, again, the idea that going to church or being a good person would take me to heaven is just not true. Next, you're not saved because somebody told you that you were? 
Oftentimes I'll talk with people and say, hey, tell me when you accepted Christ as Savior. And they say, I don't really remember it, but I was four years old. My parents told me that I went in their room one night uh, crying and I prayed and asked Jesus to save me. I don't really remember any of it, but that's what they told me. So you're basing your salvation on a story that somebody else told you? Not on your own faith and repentance in Christ, but on a story? Well, my grandmother, I remember it was her 86th birthday and it was a really big deal and uh, Got saved then, I think, is what everybody tells me. I don't really remember it because I was only three. Mm. I would question your salvation testimony if that's all you got. And again, if you, if you think that you're going to heaven because somebody else told you you're going to heaven, you need to do the, the homework yourself and figure out whether or not you're truly saved or not. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and he says, you need to do some work to find out if you are of the household of faith. You're not saved because you live a moral life. There are plenty of people that do moral things that are not Christians. Did you know that there are atheists that are kinder than actual Christians? It's embarrassing, but it's true. So living a moral life and being a good person, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to go to, uh, to places like Salt Lake City, Utah. One of the cleanest cities I've ever been in my entire life. Now, according to Mormon doctrine, it doesn't always line up with what the Bible says as far as how to get to heaven. So I would say based on scriptures, the majority of folks that are in the Mormon religion, if, they, if they're hardcore Mormons, they believe that salvation comes through the church. Salvation comes through the baptism of the church. And then if you ever leave the church, you lose your salvation. That's what they teach, which is in opposition to scripture. But Mormons are some of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. Cleanest cities I've ever been in in America. I mean, solid folks. But that doesn't mean that they're saved just because they do moral things. Again, if your faith is in a church to get you to heaven, you've been misled. Your faith must be in Jesus Christ alone. If your faith is in uh, baptismal waters, you, you, you missed the, the boat. If you think that by walking away from a church attendance takes your salvation with it, you, you don't understand the scriptures. Friend, when I'm adopted into the family of God, I don't lose my adoption based on bad behavior or poor church attendance. I'm a child of God. Nobody can take that away. So... You're not saved because you live a moral life. You're not saved because you went forward, raised your hand, prayed a prayer, had a religious experience, signed a card, or shed tears. Those things don't save anybody. Now, part of your faith and repentance might have been signing a card, saying that you made a decision to follow Jesus. Part of your faith and repentance might have been true tears of repentance over your sinful condition and being set free from that. I'm not negating any of that. But if the only thing you have to back up the fact that you're saved is you cried one night at church, that's kind of flimsy. Again, faith and repentance, it's not difficult. But if you think that I am saved because I remember one time I raised my hand at the end of a service when they said, does anybody want to go to heaven? And that's your, your salvation testimony. It doesn't hold water and it won't stand the test of eternity. I'm not trying to put any doubt in anybody's mind of whether or not you're really saved or not. That's not, I'm not trying to do that at all. I just want to make you sure that you know rock solid, 110%, without fail, I am a child of God, I have been born again, and when I die, I'm 100% sure that I'm going to heaven because I've been saved the Bible way. Not I went to some church or my grandma told me that I was going to heaven or I remember I got baptized or I attended some church and I, I cried really hard one night after a preacher preached a message on hell. No, I need to know there was a time, a day, a place where I recognized my sinful condition. I put my faith in Jesus Christ alone and repented of my sin. That's the only way one can be saved. So again, being saved is not complicated. 
I know talking through all this stuff, it might seem complicated, but it's not. It's so simple. Only false religion complicates salvation. It's so easy. It's simply a matter of recognizing my sinful condition and my need for a Savior. I realize that I'm a a sinner. I've broken God's law. I realize according to the Bible, I am a sinner and I need a Savior. Being willing to confess your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I believe that Jesus Christ is who he says that he was. I believe that he is the Son of God. I believe that he died for my sins. I believe that I can't make it to heaven without him. And then repenting of my sin. I'm asking God to forgive me of my sin and to save me. It is so dead simple. Again, I'm confused by churches that want to take people through a salvation class. And it's a six-week class you need to go through. And at the end, we'll figure out whether or not you get this stamp in the back of your book. It's like, what? Sometimes when people raise their hand, they say they don't know for sure they're on their way to heaven. I said, can I somebody sit down with you for five or ten minutes and go through the Bible and tell you how you can know for sure you can be saved? It's not a long, convoluted process. We're not trying to get you to adopt religious practices. We're trying to find out your soul's standing before a holy God. It's the most important thing in the world. Important to understand, we're only saved once. Sometimes in talking with people about their faith, they'll say, has there been a time in your life where you accepted Christ as Savior? I'll say, well, the first time I got saved, I was in high school. And then I uh, got to college, I got involved in some stuff I shouldn't have got involved in in college, and I got saved again in college, and then when uh, after we got married, our marriage was kind of rough the first few years, and uh, I realized I needed to get saved after we got married. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, no. No man shall see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. We're born first, physical birth. We're born second by the spirit of God, a spiritual birth. There's never a mention of a third, fourth, fifth, sixth, or seventh born again. You don't get born again, again, and again. You're saved once. It's it. It's all you need. To them that believed on him, to them gave he powers to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, Romans chapter, I'm sorry, John chapter 1, verse number 12. You get saved, you're adopted into the family of God. It's a done deal. Once you're adopted, I'm a child of God. So I love the song we heard last Sunday. Uh, I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Not, I am on most days, or I'm on my really good days, I'm a child of God, or I hope that I'm a child of God. No, no, no. I am a child of God because I have a wonderful, merciful Savior. So again, it's simply a matter of being saved one time. I got saved when I was a nine-year-old boy. I've not been perfect since I was nine. Guarantee you that. Ask my wife. She'll tell you all about it. I'm not free from my sin, but I'm free from the penalty of my sin. I'm free from the power of my sin. I'm free from the desire to live in my sin because I've been saved and born again. And so if you've been saved and you've strayed a little bit, that doesn't mean you're not saved anymore. You need to get saved again. You just need to come back to a loving father and tell him that you're sorry. Repentance isn't a one-time thing that we repent once and then we're done forever. We repent every single day, but we're only saved once. Because once we're saved, we're always saved. We call this the eternal security of the believer. It's a doctrine that we adhere to based on Scripture, that once you get saved, that's good for life. If you legitimately are born again, there's nothing anybody can ever do to take that away from you. Now, again, if you were in a pack of people who said, raise your hand if you want to dream again, and raise your hand, that doesn't count for nothing. But if you legitimately confess your sin before God and are saved, nobody can take that away from you. Nobody. And it's funny, sometimes people say, well, what if I renounce my salvation? You can't, you can't give it back. 
You, you just can't. If you are legitimately saved as a child of God, you can't take it back. You can't give it away. You, you got it. And you can sort it out with God when you get to heaven, but you're going to heaven. If you were legitimately born again, and that brings us great hope because it's not my job to stay saved. It's not like God's given me this gift and if you don't behave yourself, I'm going to take it away. And now I've got to live hoping that I get to keep it. That's why, again, I want to be really, really clear. We as Bible-believing Christians don't say things like, may God have mercy on his soul. Because when you die, you're in heaven or hell and whatever we pray is not going to change that. And if you died in your sin, there's not enough prayers in the world for God to have mercy on your soul because it's a done deal. We don't say may his soul rest in peace because his soul is resting in peace or torment. And there's nothing we can do to pray to change that. So if you, and again, if you trace those types of phraseologies back, they generally trace back to Catholicism and the idea that we could pray somebody out of hell after they've gone or we can be baptized in somebody else's name and get them out of hell. Those are not found anywhere in scripture at all. So we as Bible-believing Christians just don't say, we say things like, man, we're praying for the peace of God for your family. We're praying that God would bring something good from this situation. But what's done is done. Once you take your last breath, again, it's appointed unto man once to die. After that, the judgment. So, again, only saved once, and we're saved once and for all. Final thought here today. You might be sitting here saying, I'm not 100% sure that I'm saved, but I don't want to tell anybody. Maybe I, I prayed some prayer when I was a kid. I don't really remember the prayer, and everybody thinks that I'm saved, and to come out and say that I'm not saved would be embarrassing. First of all, to be more concerned with what people might think about you than what God is going to say to you the day that you stand before him in judgment just goes to show don't fear what men might do to you. The Bible even says that don't fear men who can't do anything. Fear the one who has your soul. So if you're concerned that like somebody might think strangely about you that you've been professing to be a Christian for four decades but you're not really saved, hey, that's not a problem at all. And as your pastor, I want you to know that I love you enough that if you came to me and said, hey, pastor, I thought I was saved before, but I just got saved today, I would high-five you, give you a hug, and tell you I'm proud of you. That'd be the end of it, seriously. So the devil keeps people in false professions of faith by guilt and shame and embarrassment, but God wants to set you free from all that. So I don't want you to fear the assurance of salvation. We should be fearful of a false profession of faith. Don't be so concerned that you made a profession of faith that you now realize wasn't a, wasn't a real profession of faith and you need to be saved. I would high-five you for that and tell you, great job. It would hurt my heart to know that you knew for a fact that you weren't saved but didn't want to tell anybody because you're embarrassed. <laughs> That's how the devil wins. So, if you don't know for sure that you're saved, be saved today. Again, we're not going to take you into some back room and talk to you for 45 minutes and try to sell you, you know, insurance or anything like that. Right? We don't, we don't hard sell anybody on anything. We lay the facts out. You make your own decision, totally up to you. We're not trying to control you or convince you or emotionally guilt trip you into doing something. I want you to be saved because I know, first of all, it's the best life out there. Secondly, I want to know for sure that one day when we all get to heaven, we can like, a, I don't know if we're going to have like a hooey collar get together and Chick-fil-A will cater it for us, I don't know. But um, I'm thinking that's how it's going to work. And I would want you to be there, right? It'd be a bummer if like you weren't there and be like, oh, that's a bummer. But most importantly, as a pastor, it's my job for you that the day that you stand before God, you stand before God in joy, not judgment. That's, that's what I want for you more than anything. That when you stand before God, you're like, mm, I'm here. Father, thank you for all that you've done for me. I'm glad to be home with you. Thank you for your son. That's what I want for you. I don't want you to stand there going like, 
ooh, I hope I did enough. I hope I'm going to make it. Because if you got that thought in your mind, you're not going to make it because you've never done enough promise. But you see, that's how religion traps us. Like, ooh, I hope I got to do more because hopefully I'll make it. Or I hope I did enough. Or I hope I prayed enough. Or I hope I went to church enough. And I hope I did enough good stuff that they'll push me over the edge. It didn't. It just dug your hole deeper because you had no faith. So if you've not been saved, be saved today. Really simple. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that he died for my sins. I'm asking him to forgive me of my sins and save me, and I really want to live for him. That's it. Done. And he said, could you slow down so I could write that down? No, because there's no sinner's prayer in the Bible. None. Figure it out on your own. I believe. In Romans chapter 10, verse number 9, believe in your heart, confess it with your mouth, and you will be saved. That's it. Done. So you might be sitting here today saying, I don't know for sure that I'm saved. Be saved today. Simple as that. Over and done. You might be sitting here today saying, Pastor, I'm 100% sure that I'm saved. If anybody can be saved, I know for sure that I'm saved. For me, um, the day that I got saved, my mom wrote the date down in a Bible, uh, and my, my Bible that I had as a kid. And as most kids do my age uh, at that time, I lost my Bible. And I never knew the date that I was saved on. It was such a bummer. And then like 10 years ago, my mom was cleaning out a closet. She found my Bible from when I was a kid. And so uh, she opened it up, and I got saved in 1986. 35 years ago, this past week, I accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. So this past week was my spiritual birthday, I guess you could say. 35, how about that? But here's the fact of the matter. I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, if I didn't have that Bible, if I didn't have the day, I remember the day that I called out to Jesus with the faith of a nine-year-old boy and said, have mercy on my soul because I've sinned against the Holy God. I remember that like it was yesterday. And nobody could ever take that thought away from me. So maybe that's you sitting here going, I know for sure that I'm saved. No questions asked. Good. Here's what I'd like you to do. Take what you have and pass it on to someone else. That's it. If you believe that hell is real and you believe it's hot and sinners really go there, then do something to make a difference. In the back, we have those green invitation cards. On the back of there is our service times and location and stuff. Most important thing on the back of that, five verses from the Bible, how you can know for sure that you can be saved. We have a book on the back table that's free, no cost to you, called Paid in Full. It's a really short book that you can give to somebody that basically t- leads them through the story of the gospel, how they can be saved. So sometimes I'll give somebody a book and say, hey, do me a favor, read this book. I'd like to grab coffee with you after you're done reading it. It's totally easy. If you read, you know, 10 pages a day, you could be finished with it in five days. Seriously. It's a small book, big print, my kind of book. No pictures, but it's a good book. Uh, but I, I give that book to them and say, hey, would you read this? You know why? Because I know for a fact if you don't, if you're not saved, if you're not born again, I know for a fact that you're going to die and go to hell. And I don't want that for you. So if we really believe what we say we do, let's pass that good news on to somebody else this week. But here's the thing. The only way to tell for sure of what's taking place around us is judgment day is going to come. The wheat and the tares are going to come up. I don't want to be a fake Christian when that day comes. I want to know for sure that my salvation is real and I want to bring other people with me. And so, as Paul writes to the church at Philippi here, he says, hey, there's going to be ugly folks that come into the church and do bad things, but we're not them. We're the real deal. We're the real Christians. Let's live like real Christians this week. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.